Good morning, everyone. Good morning. All right. Um, before I jump into things, sorry, um, <laughs> the title of the message is going to be Everyday Life, Sin and Repentance. Uh, we will be in Psalm 51. If you need some Bibles, uh, we'll have the ushers coming down the aisle. Please just get one from them. So we will be in Psalm 51 from verse 1 tonight. My name is Tolu. Um, I've been going to Mercy Hill for about five years, give or take. And it's been a, a wonderful time being here. Um, so we'll be in Psalm 51 from verse 1 to 9. Uh, but before we jump in there, let me sort of set the stage a little bit before we jump into the scripture. And then uh, we'll pray. And so before I start and before we jump into this, um, I guess one thing to be said about the sermon today is um, we are all in process. Uh, This is something we are all very much working through, especially me. And um, it's always convicting uh, when I come across passages like this and having to uh, speak about them. But today we will tackle the first portion of Psalm 51 from verse 1 to 9. And God willing, at some later time, we'll tackle the other uh, portion. So, Advent is upon us, right? Uh, Christmas, there is that energy, there is that excitement. And there's just something about Christmas, right? You're just always very excited. Um, but, But one of the things I would want us to always keep in mind is that Christmas is, first of all, an indictment. Before it is celebration. Christmas points to the fact that we do need a savior. We do need Christ. That's why we have Christmas. And on one side you have man. And on the other side you have God. And between those two pillars. You pretty much have sin. Our sin. And what we struggle with. right? And this is why Christ came. This is what Christ came to accomplish. So. Christ came to invite us into life in the kingdom right and if you're like me anytime i come across death there is this somber feeling this sense of are my priorities ordered the right way right and so when i think back to christ and when he says at the beginning of his ministry in matthew four seventeen, i think and he says repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand He isn't saying repent so that when you die, you don't go to hell and then you go to heaven, right? And he isn't trying to say the kingdom of heaven is somewhere far in the future. It's kind of like he's saying, behold, you know, the music instrument is to the left. He's inviting you into the kingdom of God. He is talking about the availability of the kingdom of God. I promise this will tie back to Psalm 51. (laughs) He's inviting you into union with God, union with the triune God. And I know sometimes that seems very far reaching, but if you want to study more on that, you could look at John 15, where Jesus uses the analogy of abiding in the vine, or John 17, where Jesus is praying from verse 20 to 26, or just anywhere in the New Testament where you see phrases like, we are in Christ and Christ in us. So God is inviting us into that availability Right, he's inviting us into life with the kingdom of God, inviting us into union with God. And, and so the point I want to make is we have been given a, a 
pretty much the greatest opportunity ever, which is to be a disciple, an apprentice of Christ. I talked about death and why that is somber for me is I'm always thinking if I have a day to leave, not always, but whenever I come across death, I think of that. If I have a day to leave or two weeks to leave, what would I really focus on? And it usually brings me back to this point, this point of union with God, reconciliation with God. So before we jump into the text, let me give a brief context. So Psalm 51 is about David and his son. And if you know the story, you know that David at the time is king over Israel. Israel is doing great. And um, when they're out in battle, he lost after a woman, uh, sleeps with her. The woman is married. The woman's name is Bathsheba. She's married to a guy by the name Uriah the Hittite. And when she, she reaches out to him after the act saying she's pregnant. So he, at that time, her husband is out at war. He invites her husband back, makes him drunk, tries to send him home so that he can be with his wife. So that when the pregnancy is later on discovered, nobody traces that back to him. He does that twice. Uriah doesn't bite. And then not knowing what to do, David basically writes a letter to the commander at the war front planning the death of Uriah the Hittite. It's ironic because he sent that letter through Uriah, right? So the deed is done. Uriah dies. David marries Bathsheba. And God sends a prophet to David to convict him of his sins. Uh, David admits his sins, owns his sin, and out of that, Psalm 51 sort of comes up. Right? And so that's where we will uh, stay today. And so, like I said, I want you to be thinking about Advent, the reason why Christ came. The greatest opportunity you have been offered is being an apprentice of Christ. Right? And we will use David as a mini case study of this everyday process of sin and repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for every time we Reminded of Advent, of your coming, of your mercy, of your grace, of your love. It emboldens us, God, to be able to come before you with all of our issues, to know how much we are loved. And so, God, my prayer today is that your word will be like a sword that pierces our heart. It will be like a hammer that breaks the hardened rock of our heart, fire that melts the stone of our heart so that we are willing to receive what you offer, so that we can truly celebrate this Advent and every other Advent that comes after this, knowing that we are loved by you, God. So prepare our hearts today. Help us to focus on what you have for us, so that we may be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me quickly read the text, and then we'll jump into it. So Psalm 51 from verse 1 to 9. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward man, and you teach me wisdom 
and the sacred heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, that the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. So I gave a brief overview of the story and of David because I wanted to highlight a couple of things before we actually dig into the text. On one hand, we have David, easily the greatest king Israel has ever seen, save for Christ. Right? This is the same man that God would tell or God would say to him and promise me that I would establish your throne forever, pointing to the fact that Christ will come through the lineage of David. Right? This is the same man that God would say, this is a man after my own heart. Right? So in, however you wanted to measure David, he was very successful. Whether in the material things or the spiritual, he's that person we sort of look to, that figure in biblical history that you look at and you say, this is a man I would like to be like. I mean, except for his problems. <laughs> but what I'm trying to highlight is he's such a significant figure in history, right? But but this is the very same man that in a bid to hide his sin, he would commit a string of heinous crimes, right? Very often we simply focus on the adultery, but it's more than that, right? One, there is lust, right? There is adultery. There is betrayal of Uriah. And the reason I'm saying that is during David's years in the wilderness, when he was running from Saul, before he was a king, when he was a fugitive, there were a certain group of people that were around him, an army, so to say, right? And within that army, there were a certain class of uh, fighters that were called David's 30 strongest men. People who fought and died for him at every time, right? at any time, right? Uriah the Hittite was one of those. And so you would establish there was some sort of kinship between them, right? And he had no qualms in taking his wife and sleeping with him, her wife, sleeping with her, while Uriah was fighting for him, right? And then in the, in the, in the scheme he would come up with with Joab, right? He said, set Uriah uh, to face some of the hardest men from the opposing side, right? So that he may be struck down and he would die. But what you also have to realize is some other people also died, in that scheme, right, for David to protect himself. So some children will probably not see their parents or their fathers, right, because of that scheme, right? And of course, at the core of this is just a blatant rejection of God, right? And if you want to read that story, you know, look at Second Samuel uh, chapter 11 and chapter 12, sort of details that. So I'm saying all of this to say that as much as David is this, just this, how would I put it? Just this figure in biblical history that is that has done so much and accomplished so much. Right? He did fall to sin. Right? And so I say all of that to say sin is no respecter of persons. Right? Uh, we should be in the process of dealing with sin, which is what we would look at today. And as we talk about this passage today, right? You are the focal point, not your spouse, right? Not your friend. Not someone else should know, not your parents. You are the focal point. So let, let this text be a mirror to your own heart, where you can examine your heart under the lens of this text as we jump into it. 
And also, I have to say, since we're talking about sin and it's so exhaustive, I'm just going to touch on a couple of things. It's by no means exhaustive. So please bear with me as I sort of run through certain things here. So I'm going to organize my thoughts on that three headings, which I'm uh, uh, bulletin. Uh, and so the first one is an overview of sin, and then we'll segue into Christ as our hope. And we deal with the uh, practical topic of repentance and what does that look like. So let me jump into an overview of sin. What I aim to do is to look at sin from different lenses so that we can better sort of examine our hearts. It's by no means exhaustive. It should just be a way for us to examine our hearts, even as we go on. So the first way I'm going to look at sin is sin as rejection of God. Right? When we look at sin, and there are usually different layers to the root cause of sin, but when you really pay it down to the very core, what you find that is, in a sense, sin has always been, it is, and it will always be a rejection of what God offers. When you really drill it down, that is what it always comes down to. In a way, it's just saying God is not enough. In our thirst for self-sovereignty, we bristle and reject the idea that Another might be or is the master of our faith, the captain of our soul. We, we, we don't like that. It, it, there's just something there that gets at us. Right? It's a sin is not a violation. It's, a, it's not just a violation of rules or moral codes. Right? It, it's a rejection of God. Now, pick any sin as an example. Right? And when we drill down to it, and let's just say I'm irritated with a friend. Right? When you really drill down on that, the real issue is I don't like that the friend is in the way of me accomplishing what I want to accomplish. And that's why I'm irritated. Like at the end of it, when you really drill into it, right? And in a sense, it's me not trusting God to accomplish what he wants to accomplish without me butting into it. So when you take anything and you really drill it to its core, it's a rejection of what God offers. Whether it be envy, Manipulation, anger, lies, at the core of it is this rejection of God. And so when David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your sin and blameless in your judgment, he isn't saying that, he isn't minimizing or trying to cover up his sin against Uriah, or Bathsheba, or the citizens of Israel. No. What he's doing actually is that he's heightening that offense and, and using it for him to understand that sin is always first against God. Right? And that magnitude is, I believe, is part of what helps to convict him. Right? So we know from 1 Corinthians 1.18 that you can sin against your own body. And when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, what you can draw from that is you definitely can sin against your neighbor. Right, So David isn't saying that you don't sin against other people. But what he's doing is by setting sin against God, he's acknowledging that God is the rightful judge. And there is divine justice. He's heightening that sin, the sense of that offense. So confronted by Nathan, David, of course, is pricked in his heart. And, and you see the outflow of the psalm. And so the question at least for me, and funny enough, I've seen this enough in my life this week, <laughs> is do I truly see sin as rejection of God? 
The next lens I want to look at is sin as depravity. Very often we, we tend to think of ourselves as being very good. So we are natural swindlers when it comes to self-assessment. Right? We, we just have this thing of saying, oh yeah, they, they did that, I wouldn't do that. No, no. Like There's just that sense in us, right? We're, we're just like, nah, there's, there's a class of sinners, I'm, I'm a little better. And so when we read that in scripture... We just don't naturally think of ourselves. I do that a lot when I read about the Israelites. I'm like, really, people? There's like a pillar of fire in front of you. There's a pillar of cloud at night. Like, what the heck do you want? <laughs> like, what? what? <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? But that's me. And I'm probably worse. I'm sure I'm worse, actually. No, probably. Right? Because I have Christ, the cross. I can trace it back to history. I can see all of that. But yet, simply still do what I want to do. Right, so let me read a quick a few scriptures that we tend to cringe at. Right. So Genesis six five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? First Timothy one fifteen. This is Paul speaking. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Not that he uses I am, not I was. Right? And he isn't saying that, oh, I'm continuing in my sin and doing every crazy thing. What he's doing there is that he recognizes that he will always have this label, sinner redeemed. Right, And so the idea of sin as depravity is that we are infected with sin. It isn't just an aberration or just a mistake. right? And when we talk about sin as depravity, some theologians will touch on the topic of total depravity. Right? The point of total depravity isn't saying that we are as bad as we could possibly ever be. What it's saying is that we are... We've been influenced by sin in every area of life, whether it be your intellect, your emotions, physically, spiritually, your motivations. Sin has a way of getting into all of that. right? And the very fact that when we read scriptures that I just read that we cringe shows that we do have a problem. right? We tend to not look at those scriptures and say, oh yeah, that's me. Every time I say, no, no, that's somebody else. right? And, and, and so... It, from from verse 5, what you see is David affirming this idea of total depravity when he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He isn't like dissing his mom or throwing shade at his mom, not at all. you know. And he isn't also trying to say the process of conception is evil, not at all. He's just saying that sin, I am helpless against sin in a sense. Right now, he isn't playing the victim, and we'll see that later on. But he's trying to say that sin truly has walked its way through me. So, a question for you is when you come across some of the scriptures, do you truly check your heart and say, How is my heart desperately wicked? Or is it Marvin? Nah, I know that's Josh, Rosario. <laughs> right? How do we check our hearts? And, and then the last way I want to look at sin is sin as an illusion or costume. There is this natural force field of denial around sin. 
And remember I said that we are like natural swindlers at self-assessment, right? And maybe the scary fact is that we become so skewed at excusing sin. Right? And sometimes we call that pet sense, right? We're very adept, at least I am, at tolerating in myself the very thing I dislike in someone else. Right? And even when there is a confrontation, the first reaction is defensiveness. Right? It's just as, oh, no, that wasn't me. You know, this person caused that. This person made me do that. Right? So there is a deceitfulness with sin that we, we have to be aware of. And even Hebrews 3, 12 to 13 says that. But I'm not going to read that. Uh, let me read an excerpt from Paul Tripp. Uh, from a book called Whiter Than Snow, Meditations on Psalm 51. Sin lives in a costume. That's why it's so hard to recognize. In order for sin to do its evil work, it must present itself as something else but evil. Excuse me. Life in a fallen world is like attending the ultimate masquerade party. Right? Impatient yelling Wears the costume of a zeal for truth. Lost. Usually masquerades itself as a love for beauty. Or a love of beauty. Gossip does its evil work by living in the costume of concern and prayer. Craving for power and control. Wears the mask of biblical leadership. So the fear of man. Dresses up as a servant's hat. And I like this last one. The pride of always being right masquerades as a love for biblical wisdom. Evil simply doesn't present itself as evil, which is part of its draw. And what this personally means is that as sinners, we are all very committed and gifted self-swindlers. We are all too skewed and looking at our own wrong and seeing good. So what what costumes do your sins wear? As you think about that, what costumes do your sin wear? Remember that I said that at, at the very core of sin, the root cause is a rejection of God. We don't trust God, right? But it's always helpful to abstract it a layer above so that we see the different costumes that sin wears. So that we can be aware of how the enemy usually attacks us and how we might be able to push back. So there are other lenses through which we could see sin. But, But what I want to highlight here is that we are helpless against sin without Christ. We are just simply helpless. And you see Paul speaking to this very issue in Romans 7 where he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep doing. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right. And in the very next verse, Paul points to Christ, which will segue into the second heading as Christ, as our hope. So uh, even when you understand the root cause of your sin and the costumes and all of that, 
it doesn't solve the problem of sin, right? Like, okay, sure, I understand the root cause of my sin, but it doesn't solve the problem. And it doesn't say anything about divine judgment, right? If sin is truly first against God, then there is judgment coming. It doesn't say anything about that, right? And, and so we have to realize that restoration begins and ends in God. It starts with God. See, even for David in our story to be convicted, because when you read that story, Nathan rebukes him and he just immediately admits. Right? For him to be convicted, that was God. That, that starts with God. Right? And, and so in David's cry for restoration in verse 6, you, you see him saying, Behold, you, God, delight in truth in the inward being, and so you teach me wisdom, or thou wilt teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Right. The, the idea there is that David is painting God as the initiator in our, in our restoration. Right. So in, in the battle against sin, it is always God that initiates and draws us back to himself. And, and, and what this underscores is that you are not alone in your sin. Right? God doesn't look at you and say, get away from me. Right. He's reaching out to you. This shows his willingness to want to step into that sin and draw you back to himself. This is why in divine forbearance, he passes over your sin in the hope that you will accept Christ. And as initiator, God wants access to your life. That's why David says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And so you teach me wisdom in my sacred heart. The idea is that God wants to have access to what we would normally shield Right. God wants our inner reality to, to be reflective of the outside reality and to be united with himself. Right. And, and so God accomplishes this through the person of Christ. And even David actually touches on this topic, not prophetically, obviously, but I will show you some allusions to this. So in verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, with the term hyssop, it should take you back to Leviticus chapter 14, right? Uh, where where uh, there is a description of the cleansing of anyone that has been infected with leprosy or skin diseases in general, right? And I wouldn't, I'm not going to read it for time. And so the idea there is that for a person that has been healed of leprosy or skin disease, uh, there are two birds that are brought, right? One of the birds is killed. Right? And then there's cedar wood, there's yarn, and then there's hyssop, right? And all of that is dipped into the blood, right? And then the other bird is left to fly away. And then uh, the priest takes the hyssop and basically sprinkles it on the person that is being pronounced as being clean, right? And so this, these are some of the, I want to point out certain things in there that will point us back to Christ. One bird is killed, right, for purification. The other bird is dipped in that blood, and then left to fry away. Right? Is the burden killed? Does that not speak of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross? And we being the other bird, purified by his blood, that gets to fly away. Right? And, and so David, in a sense, is pointing, right? And really, as we know, all of scripture points towards Christ. Right? And, and, and so we see that, again, God is the initiator, and our hope is Christ. Right, And this is why God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's our hope. That's the pathway. That's the restoration we seek. 
Right, and sometimes I know in the heaviness of sin, we, we tend to think God can't want me or he, he won't want me to be around him. Right, there, there is, and that's part of the lies and the delusion of sin. Right, but what I do want to say that that is not true. You see, on the side of Christ and of God, his arms are always open to you, always welcoming if you are willing to come, always open, right? And, and so the question becomes for us, which thief are we? And, and let me point to that, right? So on the cross, when Christ is crucified, right, there are two thieves crucified with him, right? And, and those two thieves sort of, they, they signify or they represent, maybe I would say, our potential responses to the sacrifice of Christ. On one hand, do we admit our sin and know that we are in need of a savior and look to him? On the other, are we still striving to be the master of our faith? And saying, Christ, come down from the cross and save me. I don't want to die. So that's the other thief or saint, right? And so Christ is always opening his arms to you to invite you. And there are certain scriptures that for me have always been key. And one of them is John 15, 9, where Jesus speaking says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in me. Right, Jeremiah 31.3 The Lord appeared to him, Israel, from far away, and says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. And so let that sink into your soul. If you have to memorize that, do that. Meditate on it. Let, let that always be. Almost like a, a defense against all the noise that sin brings with it to condemn and to put you down and to separate you from God. And if you want to meditate on more scriptures around that and God's love for you, you could take Romans eight thirty-one to 39. Memorize, meditate, look at that. Another one I like is Hebrews 6 from verse 13 to 20, which sort of shows me why God is my anchor. And my hope. So if Christ is our hope and is the pathway to restoration, right? How do we actually work this out in everyday life? Right? So remember at the beginning we talked about how the reason for Christmas is that Christ has come to reconcile us back to God. That that is the heart of God, right? Reconciliation. Uh, death for me has a way of helping me, rep- well, I think, <laughs> helping me reprioritize. But at least it makes me pause. And then I remember that I have been given the greatest opportunity ever, which is to be an apprentice of God. Said another way, I have been given the opportunity to be united with him. Life, union with the triune God. Life in the kingdom of God. Said another way, I have been given an opportunity to become Christ-like, to engage in that process. And so when I think of that, what obviously keeps me from that is sin, right? The fact that I do want to rule my own world and I want to see things the way I want to see them and have what I want, when I want it, how I want it, right? And so we come to this point of repentance. How does that actually work itself out in our daily lives? So, Since Christ is our only hope of reconciliation, and that lies through his sacrifice, uh, 
At the core of it, repentance isn't crying or even being remorseful, as good as that is. Right? Repentance is truly turning to God. Right? It's, it's literally changing how you think and turning to God. It isn't as much of, oh, I'm going to stop doing A, B, C, D, and E, which that is good. It's as much of, I want you, God. And in the turning to him, those other things, they lose their allure. They lose the draw and the power they have over you. Right? So if sin is the refusal to let God be God, repentance is letting God be God. It is that turning to him. And so I want to speak on three quick things uh, that can make up, or I think, uh, a, key, a key ingredient to our repentance. Uh, the first one is awareness of sin. Right? Uh, I've talked about how we are great self-swindlers. Right? We have immense capacity for self-deception. And so we cannot make ourselves aware of our sins. And even when confronted with sin, we usually just push back, deflect or reflect it. Right? Sometimes when I think about certain uh, conversations or interactions I have, I'm often shocked at how I don't see things. Like in the moment of that conversation and interaction, I'm often shocked as how I have a certain logic and I just stick with it. And it's almost like no matter what the person says, like whatever. This is the logic. Right? And, and so that scares me. And, and, and so our response to that, to that need for awareness, is that we pray for it. We ask God for awareness of our sins. Right? That, that should be a, a constant feature of our relationship with God. Where we are sitting before him and saying, God, in what ways am I just simply following my path? I'm following my thoughts. When we come across a convicting scripture or message, we ask for grace to subject our hearts to that message, to that scripture, to that passage. So we humble ourselves enough to question our motives. Right? We become progressively sensitive to our flaws, our delusions, our defensive self-mechanisms, right? the, the things we employ. See, it means that we are not quick to shut down suggestions or thoughts that show our weaknesses. We give room to the Holy Spirit to move. So we learn to do a double take where our heart and our conscience is concerned. So we do not hastily move on in a bid to avoid the vulnerability that the admission of our sins require. And every time you are convicted, every time there is that pain, we learn to pause and say there is something here. Even if you don't see that first, we learn to ruminate over that. Right? This is why David will say, for I know my sins and my transgressions are ever before me. It, it's a sense of having your sins before you and meditating and thinking. I think God is saying something here. So let me sit here a bit, even though it doesn't feel good. And what empowers that is knowing that, yes, we are flawed. Yes, in a sense, sin has, not in a sense, sin has walked its way through us. Right? We are influenced by that. But we are also loved by God. Right? God is always inviting us to sit with him. To consider our sins. Right? And to review what's there. So the, the first 
item there in repentance is the awareness of sin. The second one, and the awareness of sin comes, it's initiated by God, right? It's not something we can do. Uh, the, the second piece is acknowledging and owning our sins, which is basically our response to God initiated. Right. And this entire psalm really just is an admission and ownership of sin. Right. You don't see David saying, oh, no, Bathsheba shouldn't have been bathing where she was bathing. Right. She shouldn't have been that beautiful. How is that fair? Right. You don't see him employing any of those. Right. It's just a straight. I messed up. Right. There is no dodging. There is no. And maybe he did some of that at some point. But from the psalm, what we see is just a straight ownership and admission of sin. Right. He isn't trying to say, oh, sin is an aberration. This was just a mistake. This is abnormal to me. This isn't who I am. Right. He isn't giving that excuse. Actually, what I want you to see, and I'm going to read this, in the first five verses of the psalm, I want you to note how many times David uses the words I, my, or me. Right? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David is just straight up owning sin, right? Owning that this is me, there are no excuses, right? And in verse 8, when he says, let me hear joy and gladness, let the bones you have broken rejoice. You sort of get this sense that it's almost like he's appreciative of the broken bones, which is representative of the consequence of sin. He isn't rushing to say, heal me, I want to get out of here. Is longing for restoration with God. Right. And, and, and so he's anticipating that, that longing, which comes from a place, so he's anticipating reconciliation with God, which comes from a place of being humbled, which cannot be so unless he truly appreciates the broken bones, the consequences of sin. He isn't quick to rush through it. Right, he, he sits there, he absorbs what Nathan has to say. Right. And, and he basically goes before God. Now God judges him and God says, the child from uh, the adultery will die. And what you see David doing is pleading with God. He isn't saying, well, the child is going to die, whatever. But he's pleading, laying down there, calling to God. I'm sure just going over his sin, praying for forgiveness. Seeking that God will instead probably punish him than the child, right? And, and so there is that sense of sitting there. So I encourage you, obviously, uh, as you look at your sin, to dig deeper into them, to, to go down into the root causes of sin, to not just look at 
the the symptoms or the behavior or the external manifestations of your sin, like we talked about, right? Sin wears many costumes, right? Another thing to point out that sometimes sin is a is a therapy of sorts, right? There's something else that is going on, and sin is sort of like this this therapy we employ because we don't want to deal with that. And also to note that when sin comes, usually it comes usually as a pack. It's like a pack of wolves hunting you. Right? It's not really just one thing. So, for example, the sin of lust, sexual immorality, for example, might have as its companion boredom, laziness, loneliness, envy, resentment, just a bunch of other things that are around it. That are sort of hedging you. It's kind of like a pack of whoops hedging you, right? To to get at you. So let the Holy Spirit help walk through, help walk you through the length and the breadth of your sins, right? Which has that effect of throwing you at the foot of the cross upon the mercy of God, like we've seen David do. So we've talked about an awareness of sin, owning sin, and then the last thing I want to touch on is an appeal to mercy, right? And again, you see this all through the psalm, right? A very, I mean, starting from the, the first verse. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. See, David, knowing the depth of his sin, runs right back to God. He doesn't run away, he runs right back to God. If, if you would look at Saul and David as two kings, very often when I look at them, I'm like, David was worse in just the outward things he did. Like David was a troublesome person, right? But, but what you see though is he had this fear of God, which part of that is that running back to God. Whereas with Saul, it was just like, Yeah, God is going to take the kingdom. Okay, Samuel, just come with me and stand before the elders so that I am not shamed, right? And, and so the appeal to mercy for David is that he knows that there is forgiveness and redemption with God. And he knew that before the cross, we have the benefit of the cross. Where we can point to what Christ did on the cross. And, and so this is the, 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 basically this is the third step where we appeal to mercy. And it, it requires humility, right? So what you don't see with David is that he's not employing any half-hearted measures. He's repeatedly using the phrases, blot out. Wash me, cleanse me, my sins, my iniquity, my transgression. He's basically covering the range of anyhow you want to describe sin. It's like, all of that. I need help. It's almost like he sees sin as a disease and says, God, you have to help me. I can't get over this by myself. Right. And so David calls on God and in verse 9, in a bid to be restored with God, he says, Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquities. Right? And this is exactly what Christ has accomplished for us. In Colossians chapter 2, um, from verse 13, 13 to 14, it says, And you, speaking of us, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, read sin as depravity. God made our life together with him. God initiating that. God made us alive together with him. Having forgiven us all of our transgressions, all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this 
he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Right? And so if David can appeal to mercy, we have more on our side to always go back to God. Knowing that there is always forgiveness and redemption with him, in him. And so you, you are deeply loved by God. I cannot say that enough. You are deeply loved by God. There is an invitation for you to accept life in the kingdom of God. To accept that God is calling you into a life of union with himself. Becoming Christ-like. You see, confession and repentance is actually food for your soul. I know it can be painful and it can feel awkward. right? And I'm talking about you sitting before God and called doing business with God. And God will lead you if you need to go speak to someone else or if you should uh, reach out to someone. But confession should be the bread that is consistently in our mouth. I mean, unless you're perfect. Eh? It, should, it should just always be there. Right? And, and there are real benefits to that because one, it shows you your limitations. Right? It focuses you on the love of your father. Love he has for you. It humbles you. It helps you truly love your neighbor as yourself because you are not so quick to be short with them. And then he frees you of this need for performance. Knowing that yes, you are flawed, but you are deeply loved by God. So let me ask a couple questions and then we'll wrap this up. How often do you own your sins. How often do you sit with God and, and talk about your sins, owning them, seeking an awareness of your sins, and then crying out to God, appealing to his mercy, wanting reconciliation with him? So come to the cross. Come to the cross of Christ so that he might wash you clean. Come, though your sins be as scarlet. So the blood of Christ will make them whiter than snow. Though our sins be as crimson, he will make them whiter than wool and blot them out forevermore. Amen. So um, before I leave and before we pray, I just want to point your attention to the homework in the pamphlet. Please uh, do that. I would love us. I would love for us to actually walk through one of those, but we do not have time. Uh, so please uh, try to walk through that. Try to just sit with those scriptures, especially the one in Luke, and really try to carve out some time to be with God and ask some of those questions, and continue to note uh, the patterns of sin in your life, right? For the purpose of bringing them to God, not for the purpose of being depressed by them or thinking you're a devil. No. Right, but for the purpose of bringing them to God and being restored. So let's pray. So Father, we thank you again and again for Advent and for Christmas. Thank you so much, God, that you are the initiator of reconciling us back to you. That you love us so much that you will not let us just simply be there in our sins. But that you are always drawing us back to yourself. So, Father, even as you convict us of our sins, give us grace to, to receive your invitation to be aware of our sins, 
to own up to sin and to appeal to you for mercy, to throw ourselves really at the foot of the cross. Father, please do not let the voice of the enemy reign over us. Do not let the voice of the enemy that brings condemnation um, do, do not silence that voice, basically. Do, do not let it be louder than your voice of mercy and love. We need you, God. And help us to truly enjoy Advent, to truly enjoy Christmas, and to truly enjoy why you have come. In Jesus' name. Amen.